Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. So thankful for this church and thankful for your pastor and all the people who serve here. Great privilege to be with you here this weekend. Genesis chapter 1, not too hard to find, huh? All right, let's go ahead and pray one more time and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, God, we're, we're thankful, Lord, for who you are. We're thankful for what you've done in our lives. We're thankful for what you're doing here in this church. And God, we just ask now that you would bless this time as we consider the scriptures. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring encouragement and instruction to our hearts and minds, Lord. And God, that you would just have your way here among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I'd like to talk to you about the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. The Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. I'd like for us to look at some passages in the Bible where the biblical writers revealed amazing facts about the earth and the universe thousands of years before the invention of telescopes and microscopes satellites and deep diving submarines and all of the other technology that's finally allowed scientists in the last century or so to, to discern that these declarations in the scriptures were correct, even though they were penned thousands of years ago. We believe that this is compelling evidence that biblical writers had encounters with God, wherein he not only revealed himself to them, but also revealed insights about creation that were not known at the time. So we'll consider some of these passages in the Bible. My hope and prayer is that this would not only encourage you in your faith and maybe fortify your confidence in the Bible, but that our time together would help equip you with some interesting facts and details that you can bring up in future conversations with skeptics and non-believing family members when you get on to the topic of the Bible. For as you know, many of those who've rejected God today, they believe the Bible has been disproved by scientific discoveries. When in reality, scientific discoveries have helped to confirm the Bible in several different details, as I will go on to show here this morning. So let's start by considering what the Bible had to say about, number one, the start of the universe. The start of the universe, notice with me if you would there in your Bibles, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen for you. Moses writes this, in the, what word? Beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible makes it clear here, right out the gate, in the very first verse, that the universe had a beginning. 
Well, this went against the prevailing views in Moses' day, around 1500 BC. Most of the ancient world, including the Egyptians at the time of Moses, believed that the universe was eternal, uncreated, just there. Now, this is not to suggest that the ancients didn't believe in gods. They believed in lots of different deities, but they believed that their deities operated in a space-time matter universe that already had been in existence from throughout eternity. And up until the 20th century, the widely accepted view within scientific circles was that the ancients were right about the universe. The universe is just there like it's always been. It did not have a beginning. Well, that view, as you probably know, has fallen on hard times. In fact, scientific evidence discovered in the 20th century demolished this theory. The cosmic background radiation echo, the second law of thermodynamics, and the motion of the galaxies have now all led astronomers to conclude that the universe had a beginning just like the Bible said it did 3,500 years ago when Moses pinned those words here in Genesis chapter 1. Arno Penzias, who was awarded a Nobel Prize as a scientist for discovering some of this evidence that the universe had a beginning, agrees that the scientific data lines right up with the Bible. In an interview in the New York Times, Penzias said this a while back, he said, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole, end quote. So score one for the Bible right there in the very first verse. If you're taking notes, that was number one, the start of the universe. Let's consider another section of Scripture that speaks of, number two, the stretching out of the universe. The stretching out of the universe. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. There on the screen for you is an artist's depiction of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, up until the 20th century, scientists believed that the Milky Way galaxy was the entire universe. They had no idea that there were other galaxies outside of our own, and they certainly did not know that the universe was expanding or stretching out. Well, that all changed in the 1920s when an American astronomer by the name of Edwin Hubble discovered other galaxies outside of our own and that the universe was expanding. Using the most advanced telescope on the planet at the time, located at the Mount Wilson Observatory in Los Angeles, Edwin Hubble discovered distant galaxies outside of our own and that these distant galaxies were moving further and further apart from one another, that the universe was literally expanding or stretching out. 
What an incredible discovery this was. It revolutionized our understanding of the cosmos. But, you know, the Bible actually mentioned this long before Edwin Hubble was even born, and, and even long before the first telescope was even invented. Where so? Well, there in your Bibles, in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, at the end of verse 22, written around 700 BC, Isaiah speaks of God who, quote, stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. For those of you who have gone tent camping, you know what it's like when you pull that tent out of your trunk and plop it down there, the campsite. The next thing that you need to do is begin stretching out the corners, right, in all the different directions so that you can then get frustrated with the poles. That's the next step. That's usually what happens with me anyways. And then I tell my kids, eh, I'm not going camping ever again. But be that as it may, Isaiah uses this as an analogy to describe what's happening with the universe, uh, it, that God is stretching it out. The book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8, mentions this as well. It says there that God stretches out the heavens. These two verses indicate that the universe has expanded since the time of its creation in Genesis chapter 1. Friends, Isaiah wrote those words 2,700 years ago. The book of Job, about 4,000 years ago. Question for you, how in the world could Isaiah and Job have known that the universe was expanding? There were no telescopes back then. There were no satellites back then. Galileo was the first person to point a telescope to the heavens, and that didn't happen until 1608. And when one looks up at the heavens from here on the earth, the universe does not appear to be expanding. And so a solution to this isn't, well, they just looked up at the heavens long enough and figured it all out. No, you cannot tell from planet earth with the naked eye that the universe is expanding. And yet, they boldly declared God stretches out the heavens. Amazing. Now, the skeptic interjects and says, hold on here a second, Charlie. These kinds of details were probably just inserted into the Bible after the discoveries were made, you know, to make the Bible appear as though it had these great insights. Some critics of the Bible propose this as a solution to these kinds of statements in the Bible. Well, in response to that objection, we know that these verses were not inserted into the Bible sometime later in history because we have ancient manuscript copies of the Bible that predate every one of these modern discoveries. In fact, right there on the screen for you is a photograph of an ancient scroll of the book of Isaiah. It's one of the Dead Sea Scrolls unearthed in Israel about 70 years ago. And this scroll on the screen is approximately 2,100 years old. And it just happens to be opened up to the very spot we're at right now in our Bibles. 
in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22 right there in the Hebrew says the exact same thing that our Bibles say today that God stretches out the heavens thus proving nothing was inserted into the Bible sometime later in history and hundreds of other ancient biblical manuscripts show this to be the same with all of the other passages we'll be considering here this morning now, while we're on the topic of the cosmos, there's a third area that biblical writers beat modern scientists to the truth. This one has to do with the stars. The stars. Before the invention of the telescope, people believed that the stars could all be numbered. They were so confident of this, they drew up star charts like this one with all of the stars mapped out, and then they'd create these lists with all of the stars named and numbered. The Greek astronomer and mathematician Hipparchus, who lived about a century before Jesus was born, said that there were 1,026 stars in the universe. Some of you are chuckling because you know where this is headed, right? Well, 200 years later, the astronomer and mathematician Ptolemy said that there were actually a few more than that. He brought the count up to 1,056 stars. Now, that was the prevailing view for the next 1,300 years until the time of the German astronomer, Johannes Kepler, came along, and he brought the count down to 1,005 stars. Well, as you probably know, all of these counts got thrown out the window when the telescope was finally invented. When Galileo, a devout Christian, pointed his telescope to the heavens in 1608, he discovered that these previous counts were way off and that the Bible was actually right. What had the Bible said regarding the matter? Well, if you're a note taker, jot it down. Jeremiah 33, verse 22, declared, God declared there that the host of heaven, a way of referring to the stars, cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured. So God says here that the stars cannot be numbered, and trying to do so would be about as futile as trying to count the grains of sand floating around in the sea. Obviously an impossible task. Well, Jeremiah wrote that more than 2,000 years before Galileo came along with the first telescope. Today, with the help of powerful telescopes, astronomers estimate that the universe contains approximately 2 trillion, not stars, just galaxies, containing, NASA says, anywhere between 100 billion and 10 trillion stars each. Far too many stars for us to ever count. Jeremiah declared that to be the case because the God who created the stars and knew how many there were revealed that to him so long ago. Just incredible. What else did the biblical writers get right? Well, if you're a note taker, jot it down. Number four, facts about the sun. Facts about the sun. In ancient Egypt, the sun was worshipped as a deity named Re, commonly mispronounced as Ra, whom the people thought majestically sailed across the sky every day in his fiery boat on his daily visits to what they called the upper and lower worlds. Evidence of sun worship has now been found all over 
the ancient world. South America, Central America, Asia, Europe, the Assyrians worship the sun, the Babylonians worship the sun, uh, the Egyptians, as I just mentioned. But after an encounter with the true and living God, Moses, who was born and raised in ancient sun-worshiping Egypt, even educated in their schools, goes against the prevailing view of the day and declares in the opening chapter of Genesis that the sun was just a creation of God. Not a deity, but just a creation of the true and living God who created it to provide light to the earth and to help measure the passing of time. Now, that surely would have resulted in a death sentence for Moses, but of course we know he had already left Egypt by the time God re began revealing these details to him. But of course Moses was right, wasn't he? And when the telescope was finally invented thousands of years later, astronomers were able to prove to people that the sun is not a deity flying across the sky every day, but just an enormous star millions of miles away from our planet. But 400 years after Moses died, while much of the ancient world was still bowing down to and worshiping the sun, David pinned these words about the sun in Psalm 19, verse 6. He said, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. David penned this psalm about 3,000 years ago. Well, for years, modern critics of the Bible laughed at this particular verse, for they thought David made an enormous error here. They thought he was espousing an outdated view of the cosmos known as geocentricity. They thought David was saying that the sun goes around the earth, that it's on a circuit around the earth. Well, if you reread the verse, you'll notice that David doesn't even mention the earth. He doesn't say the sun goes around the earth. He says the sun is on a circuit through the heavens. But they laughed at this. They misunderstood what he said. And they, they said, well, that's, this is ridiculous what David said. We know the sun doesn't go anywhere. It's stationary. It's actually just the earth that moves around the sun. But... With the advent of powerful telescopes, we've now discovered that the sun does move. It's traveling about 52,000 miles an hour on a circuit through the heavens as it makes its way around the center of the Milky Way galaxy, all in perfect harmony with what David said here in Psalm 19 verse 6, when he declared the sun to be on a circuit through the heavens. Incredible. Not only did the biblical writers speak correctly about the universe, the stars, the sun, they spoke with amazing accuracy and foresight about our earth. And that brings me to the fifth point I'd like to briefly touch on. Number five, the shape of the earth. The shape of the earth. The ancient Egyptians and Babylonians are on the historical record for having believed that the earth was flat. For a long time, people thought the earth was flat in the ancient world. They thought it was flat, shaped like a disc, surrounded by a large river of water called Oceanus. And it was believed anyone foolish enough to sail through the pillars of 
Hercules, now known as the Strait of Gibraltar, the western end of the Mediterranean Sea, would then fall off the earth into nothingness. That sounds pretty terrifying. You can imagine why people were afraid to sail west. Well, some critics of the Bible today say that the Bible promoted or agreed with these ancient flat earth views. Critics of the scriptures point to Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, where John speaks of four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Critics claim that this verse indicates that the earth is a flat square with four literal corners. Well, they are quite mistaken about the matter. They overlook the fact that John was simply using a figure of speech to describe the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, and we still use this same figure of speech 2,000 years later, even though we know with certainty that the earth is a globe. And John would have been familiar with the fact that the Bible actually indicates in more than one place that the earth is a round sphere. Isaiah, who lived during a period when Persian astronomers were convinced the earth was flat and centuries before the Greeks figured out that the earth was round, wrote this in Isaiah 40, verse 22. He said, God sits above the circle of the earth. From space, the earth has a circular shape to it, doesn't it? But how did Isaiah know that? Well, maybe he read the book of Job. More than a thousand years before Isaiah penned those words, the book of Job told us that God has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Well, that's fascinating. Let me break it down for you and show you what he's saying. He says that God has drawn a circle where? On the surface of the waters. That's a reference to the oceans. At the boundary of light and darkness. This boundary between light and darkness is where evening and morning occur. Notice, though, that the boundary is not a square or a triangle. It's a circle. Why is that? Well, because the earth is round. This is just incredible accuracy and foresight there. How about number six, the suspension of the earth? The suspension of the earth, what am I talking about? Well, ancient Hindus believe that the earth rested on the backs of elephants who stood on the back of a turtle. Something has to hold the earth up, people used to think. What did the Bible say regarding the matter? Well, again, in one of the oldest books in the Bible, Job 26, verse 7 says, God stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Nothing. In other words, the earth is uh, completely unattached in space. No turtles, no elephants. Well, of course, we now have pictures, thousands of pictures of the earth from outer space, revealing to us that this is indeed the case. But how did Job know this 4,000 years ago, before the invention of telescopes and satellites and rockets? His declaration here is astounding. All right, let's consider a few more. Number seven, the second law of thermodynamics. 
The second law of thermodynamics, why don't you turn with me to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. While you're turning there, I'll bring this up real fast. Since I touched on it a minute ago, if you're wrestling with anybody and as far as, you know, conversations, who is convinced that the earth really is flat, you might take them to our website, alwaysbeready.com. That's the name of our ministry, alwaysbeready.com. We've got an alphabetical list of topics there on our website. You can go down to the F's and click on flat earth. And we've got some articles there that lay out all of the compelling evidence that the earth really is round and NASA's not involved in a great cover-up. Has anyone caught wind of the flat earth movement? It, it's incredible how many people have bought into this idea that NASA has photoshopped all the, fo all the photos and videos and all of that and the flat, the earth really is flat. So again, our website might be helpful if you're uh, having discussions along those lines. All right, the second law of thermodynamics. Well, here in Psalm 102, follow along if you'd like in your Bible, verse 25 and following. The psalmist says, Of old you, God, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The Bible reveals here in this psalm, two and a half, maybe 3,000 or so years ago, that the universe and the earth are like a garment, like a robe that is wearing out and that will one day even pass away. Do you have a bathrobe at home or maybe some other garment, maybe a sweater in your closet that's wearing out? You've had that beloved thing for five, ten now, who are we kidding? 20 or 30 years, some of you. And it has visible signs of decay. Missing buttons, holes in it, threads hanging out of it. But you love it and you don't, you know, dare to part with it. I think we've probably all got a couple things like that in our closet. Well, the Bible uses that decaying garment as an analogy to describe what is happening with the earth and the universe. They are wearing out, growing old, running down. Now, keep in mind that the prevailing view the time, at the time Psalm 102 was written was that the universe was eternal. And people who believed that would have laughed at this biblical teaching. Why is that? Well, because things that are eternal don't wear out. Anything that has managed successfully to exist from throughout eternity has to have been self-sustaining. And yet, along comes the author of this psalm and he says, no, that's not how it is actually. He says, the earth and the heavens are wearing out. They're running down. Stars are burning out, using up their fuel. They're deteriorating. And so some people surely wondered, who's right? The, the biblical author or the philosophers like Aristotle who assure us that the universe is self-sustaining and not wearing out? Well, 2,000 years later, scientists would finally discover something about the universe that would help settle the debates. In the 19th century, two physicists, William Thompson 
a brilliant Bible-believing Christian, and Rudolf Clausius discovered that the amount of usable energy in the universe is decreasing, that everything in the universe is running down, deteriorating, constantly becoming less and less orderly. They formulated this discovery into a scientific law and called it the second law of thermodynamics. This law is one of the most well-tested, well-established scientific laws known to man. Harvard scientist John Ross says there are no known violations of the second law of thermodynamics. None. In other words, everywhere we dig, everywhere, everywhere we explore in the universe, we find the second law of thermodynamics firmly entrenched and in full operation. There's not a single documented violation of this law that we've been able to discover anywhere. Friends, this reality that the universe is wearing out running out of usable energy, wasn't understood, wasn't discovered by scientists until the mid-1800s, more than 2,000 years after the Bible revealed this to be the case. Once again, the Bible was found to be trustworthy. How about number eight, the source of water? The source of water. Several thousand years ago, the ancients observed large rivers like this one on the screen flowing out into the ocean, but they could not figure out why the oceans never overflowed or why the sea level never rose. The source of rainwater was a complete mystery to them. Well, it wasn't until Leonardo da Vinci and European scientists Pierre Perrault and Edna Marriott in the 17th century that the Earth's water cycle finally began to be understood in an accurate and detailed way. The observations of these scientists led to the understanding that rain clouds develop from the evaporation of ocean water, followed then a pure by atmospheric transportation, and then of course, what we call precipitation today. So scientists finally began to figure these things out three, four, five hundred years ago, but had they read the writings of Solomon, they might have figured this out a lot sooner. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 7, Solomon wrote this about 3,000 years ago. He said, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, the sea, there they flow again. Friends, this is astonishing. Solomon understood that the sea down here is the source of the water that's flowing down the mountains into the sea. It seems completely backwards. You think, no, this is the source of that water. He says, no, no, this down here is the source of this water. He says that the sea is the place from which the rivers flow. The book of Job seemed to hint at this as well. In Job chapter 36, 27 and 28, he said, God draws up drops of water. He seems to be describing what we call evaporation today, which then distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. 
And then one other place in the Bible where this seems to be alluded to, about 2,700 years ago, Amos said uh, in Amos 9, verse 6, that God calls for the waters of the sea. Then what? Then he pours them out, the Bible says, on the face of the earth. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Remarkable. How did Amos, Job, and Solomon know that the source of rainwater is oceanic evaporation? When we reflect upon the fact that scientists didn't discover this to be the case until about 3,000 years later, these biblical passages are truly incredible. While we're talking about water, let's discuss another revelation the Bible made long before it was discovered to be true. This one has to do with number nine, springs in the ocean. Springs in the ocean. 70% of the Earth's surface is covered with ocean water today. That, of course, is incredibly deep, uh, nearly seven miles straight down to the bottom, they've discovered in some places. Much of the ocean floor away from the shoreline lies in total darkness. Three tons per square inch pressure at the ocean floor makes exploring most of the ocean floor an impossible task apart from modern research submarines. So in light of this, I think it's reasonable to assume that none of the biblical writers ever explored the deep ocean floor. Agreed? I think that's a safe assumption. And yet, some 4,000 years ago, the book of Job said that there are underwater springs on the floor of the ocean. God revealed this to Job when he asked him this question in Job 38, verse 16. He said, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? In other words, God asked Job, Job, have you ever explored the bottom of the ocean and seen these great big canyons I have down there? Have you ever explored these deep, uh, you know, these springs of water? letting out water onto the, or into the ocean down at the bottom of the ocean? Now, the obvious answer was, no, Lord. No human had ever done that, and God knew that. He was asking Job a series of questions to help Job realize he really didn't know much about what was going on uh, in the world. That's kind of how God uh, humbled him for a necessary reason. But Job mentions these springs of the sea, but check this out. The very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, mentions them as well in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. When Moses describes what brought on the flood, he says, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. So notice that the flood was not just the result of 40 days of rain falling. No, Genesis 7, 11 says that the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And of course, that unleashed a lot more water onto the planet. Some people in Moses's day or Job's day must have thought, these guys are crazy. How in the world could they know what's going on at the bottom of the ocean? But now, more than 3,000 years after these declarations were made in the Bible, we finally discovered that they were right all along. With the help of a deep-diving research submarine built to withstand that three tons per square inch pressure at the ocean floor, 
deep sea springs and fountains on the ocean floors were finally observed by humans for the very first time at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in 1973. Here on the screen, you can see a photograph of some of these springs. I'll zoom in on it a bit there. The underwater springs spew out boiling hot up to 750 degree mineral laden water from chimneys scientists call them, that are about 15 feet tall atop mounds of minerals up to 60 feet high. Isn't that just fascinating? Fountains and springs at the bottom of the ocean, just like Moses said all the way back in the very first book of the Bible. Incredible. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and consider a tenth and final example of the Bible's amazing accuracy. This last one concerns sea paths. Sea paths, why don't you turn with me one last time to Psalm chapter eight. Psalm chapter eight. This is a beautiful Psalm, one of my favorites. Let's pick it up in verse three. David said this, he said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. How excellent indeed. Beautiful words there. But I'd like to draw your attention back to verse 8. David says the fish of the sea pass through the paths of the seas. That's interesting. David indicates here in the Bible that the seas have paths. A path is a course or a route that something travels upon. So David says here that the sea has paths. It has courses or routes that the ocean water follows. Now, had people carefully considered what David said here about 1000 BC, they might have wondered what in the world he was talking about. Why is that? Well, because in ancient times, very little was understood about the seas and the oceans. In fact, the only seas the ancient Hebrews knew of were the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea. The Dead Sea and the, the Sea of Galilee are really just large inland lakes. But none of these bodies of water possess significant observable currents. And so for about 2,800 years, David's words about the seas having paths went untested and unverified, at least in any way that historians are familiar with. Well, that all changed in the 19th century with a man by the name of Matthew Murray. Matthew Murray was an astronomer, 
geologist, meteorologist, and the head of the U.S. Navy's Department of Charts and Instruments. He was very bright, and he was also a Christian. One day, though, while lying very ill in bed, even with what he thought was a deadly illness, he asked his daughter to get out the family Bible and read to him, and so she happily obliged. And she opened up her Bible and landed right where we're at in our Bibles today, Psalm chapter 8. And so she read that Psalm to him, but when she read that phrase, paths of the seas, there in verse 8, those words struck this Navy man. Matthew Mari, and he said to her, quote, if God says the paths of the sea, they are there. And if I ever get out of this bed, I will find them. Well, Matthew Mari did recover from that illness, and that's the very thing he set out to do. After years of extensive research, which included deep sea soundings, tracking thousands of bottles that he released into the ocean, and an examination of thousands of dusty old ship logs, Mari discovered that the ocean water followed certain predictable paths. Two of the better known paths or currents are the Gulf Stream on the East Coast and what's called the California Current on the West Coast. For example, the water in the Gulf of Mexico flows around the tip of Florida and follows a path 40 miles wide and 2,000 feet deep flowing up the East Coast across the Atlantic Ocean and all the way over to Western Europe. The California Current, as it's called, brings cold water south from Alaska down along the California coast. This is one of the reasons why Southern California has some of the best weather on the planet. Those large hurricanes that start brewing off the coast of Mexico and that are headed north right to Southern California are always uh, put out by that cold water current because a hurricane needs warm water to continue to generate energy. And so uh, as far as recorded history goes, a hurricane has never a single time made landfall in Southern California. And it's because of that California current. Well, Matthew Murray published a book on his remarkable discovery and his research in 1855. And he encouraged sailors to start using these kinds of paths in the ocean uh, to increase efficiency and decrease the number of accidents. Well, his discovery of the ocean's currents revolutionized the shipping industry, for as you can imagine, it's far more efficient to sail with a current than to go against one or even across one. Mari's recommendations immediately cut sailing times by weeks, even months for longer voyages and began saving companies millions of dollars in shipping expenses. Today, in Matthew Murray's home state of Virginia, there is a large monument and statue that they built of him with these words inscribed on it. It says, Matthew Fontaine Murray, pathfinder of the seas, the genius who first snatched from ocean and atmosphere the secret of their laws. Every mariner, every sailor for countless ages, as he takes his chart to shape his course across the seas, will think of thee. His inspiration, the plaque says, Holy Writ, Holy Scripture, Psalm 8, verse 8, the verse we just looked at, and then a couple of our other verses that inspired his search as well. Matthew Mari is known today as the father 
of oceanography. What an incredible discovery this man made. But what I find even more incredible is that 2,800 years before Mari made this discovery, David revealed to us that there are paths in the seas. Friends, these kinds of declarations in the scriptures are compelling evidence that the men who penned the Bible were being guided by the creator of the universe. And that's precisely what the Bible indicates about itself in verses like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, where it says, Men of God spoke as they were moved to do so by the Holy Spirit. They weren't just taking wild guesses about these kinds of details. No, the God who knows all there is to know about the earth and the universe, he came alongside these men. He superintended the writing of Scripture to make sure that what these men penned accurately reflected the way things really are. And because that is the case, you can read the Bible today with the highest degree of confidence. But friend, if you're a visitor here today, or perhaps new to reading the Bible, I feel it important to point out to you that this book is not primarily about the stars, the solar system, or the shape of the earth. The biblical writers touched on these things, oftentimes just in passing. The primary message of this book is about something far more important, mankind's Savior, Jesus. For, you see, humans have been separated from a relationship with God because of our sins. Without a remedy to that situation, the Bible says we would all face the righteous judgment of a holy God for our sins and end up in hell. Thankfully, though, that doesn't have to happen because this same God who is holy and just and who hates sin is also described in the Bible as being loving and merciful. He loves you so much that he determined he would pour out the punishment you deserved for your sins on himself. How incredible is that? That's what was happening to Jesus when he was nailed to that cruel wooden Roman cross. He was receiving the punishment you and I deserve for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled back into a right relationship with God so that we could escape hell and be granted everlasting life in God's kingdom. Of course, he rose from the grave three days later and now today, he's offering all humanity that incredible free gift of everlasting life, forgiveness of sins, and peace with God. Friends, I don't know what you normally get for Christmas, but this is way better. Way better. Everlasting life? You can't put a price tag on that. How do you receive that gift? I'll let God answer, so simple. This is the verse that led to Charles Spurgeon's conversion. A preacher quoted this verse during a sermon and Charles Spurgeon believed on the Lord. He didn't realize it was that simple. God simply says, turn to me and be saved. Who's the invitation go to? Ah, everybody. God says all the ends of the earth, there's no one excluded from the offer. 
Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. So that's it. God's not asking that you do anything else other than turn to him. Place your faith in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for your sins. I encourage you to do that today if you need to. God's a prayer away. You could call upon him this morning before you walk out of this building and say, God, forgive me for my sins. I, I trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. Something that simple. If you'll call upon the Lord in that way, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put that off. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, may you draw near to the Lord in the days ahead, picking up and reading the scriptures often, fully confident that they truly are the very trustworthy words of God. Amen? Amen. All right, well, we've covered a lot in 45 or 50 minutes or so. Praise the Lord. Quickly want to quickly want to mention that we do have this entire presentation pre-recorded on DVD with all those visuals that you saw on the screen embedded on the, you know, so they'll come up on your television. We've also released several other new videos since I was here four years ago. I'll just quickly uh, let them skip by here on the screen. We've got one on archaeological evidence for the Bible, another one that addresses that difficult issue of God is loving. Why does he allow evil and suffering? Uh, we've put out a new DVD that addresses that thorny issue, homosexuality in the Bible. Uh, Jesus, mankind's only savior. Um, uh, this little resource, you'll see some of these on the table as well when you walk by, uh, a flash drive. As you walk by our resource table out in the foyer, you'll see we have 33 different DVDs now, if you count those new ones. And with the help of technology, we've been able to put all 33 of our videos onto a tiny little flash drive the size of a double a battery you can stick that right into a usb port on your television pull up any of our videos there you can stick it into a usb port on your computer watch the videos there uh, or even transfer the videos through your computer onto your ipad your iphone your samsung tablet or whatever you whatever you use nowadays to watch videos so if you could use some additional help contending for the faith and dialoguing with skeptics. We've got uh, all those videos there. We've got some new books out there as well. So stop by the table if that might interest you. I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer and then we'll close in a song. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this time in your word. Lord, we're thankful for these incredible declarations in the scripture. What a great reminder to us today that we haven't followed after cleverly devised fables. No, the Bible truly is what it claims to be, the Word of God. And so we're thankful for that reminder here today. God, we pray that you give us a renewed hunger and thirst to read the Bible, to obey what we read, and to walk in its light, Lord. And God, lastly, we just pray for anyone here today who might not know you in a saving way. God, we pray that today would be the day they call upon your name. Help them to do that we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. 
Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.